Welcome to Indie Matters, the show from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato, up here in Reno. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis down in Las Vegas. On this episode of Indie Matters, reporter Howard Stutz joins us to talk about a story he wrote about the Caldor Fire's effect on the South Lake Tahoe gaming economy. After that, Joey and reporter Jackie Valley talk with UNR's James Linhart about his research on invincibility and individualism and how those mindsets are affecting vaccination rates. At the end of the show, reporters Jasmine Orozco-Rodriguez and Janelle Calderon come on to talk about bilingual reporting, reaching different audiences, and the Spanish newsletter that's now available in English. The Caldor Fire that started in Northern California on August 14th scorched more than 200,000 acres and forced residents of South Lake Tahoe to evacuate for days as it threatened the area close to the lake. The normally tourist-filled Lake Tahoe had been on the upswing in 2021 after struggling through pandemic-related closures, but tourism was forced to a halt once again over the summer when fires and smoke hit the region. Gaming reporter Howard Stutz went to South Lake Tahoe recently to talk to casino representatives about how the region is recovering now that the smoke has cleared and the fires subsided. One of the people he interviewed was Carol Chaplin, the president and CEO of the Lake Tahoe Visitors Authority. After COVID, people's flexibility, their work schedule, their remote, you know, remote ability and those kind of things really, really, you know, bolstered our our September in general. The Dixie Fire was very active. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, burning thousands of acres when the Caldor Fire started. After the Dixie started, we had the Tamarack Fire down in, in the valley. And so those two fires actually caused smoke in the basin. So there was some taper much before the fire reached, came up over the mountain. Mm-hmm. And so, so we were kind of surrounded by wildfire. So the smoke was really the first thing that started to get in the way of visitation a little bit. Yeah, it was pretty, it was pretty bad for some days. But. And now we're going to hear from my discussion with our reporter, Howard Stutz. You were up here in northern Nevada, and you went to South Lake Tahoe to talk to some of the casinos and about what's going on. So can you just tell me a little bit about what you heard from the people you talked to? They shut down the market from September 1 through September 6, because... Highway 50 was shutting down. The casinos ended up becoming like command centers for the first responders, the fire department, different fire departments. They housed a lot of the first responders during that time. They were also housing, remember, their employees, who a lot of their employees live in the California side of, of, of Tahoe. So the, the casinos were housing the employees. So to look at it, it looked like it was going to barrel right down through Highway 50. And there was conversation from the emergency teams that, you know, Kingsbury would be the last stand kind of thing. Yeah. But but it didn't it didn't get that far, luckily. And and actually Heavenly had a lot to do with that. Using the snow machines to Yeah, and they also had they used the base lodge as camp. Yeah, because the casinos then opened up the hotels. I know they they housed all the firefighters and first responders. Yeah, they also had, they were also feeding them Mm -hmm. and allowing them to use the facilities so that they could relax and, and, you know, go back out there again. I know one person in particular who was a banquet staff member there and and she was working every day. You know, my board of directors chair Mm -hmm. was doing laundry for those guys in his his hotels. (laughs) 
thing was, is the perception nationally was Tahoe's burning down. You know, you hear wildfire outside Lake Tahoe, it's burning down, the, the lake's going to be polluted, and this and that. The reality was the fire, it was a lot of smoke, but the fire got maybe within five miles of South Lake Tahoe, never never threatened any of the city or the, or the casinos or the, or the lake at all. So once everything reopened, the perception had to be changed that this is, we're open, we're open for business and to get people back. The big challenge was for a good part of September, Highway 50 was shut down still. That's the main route coming in from Northern California. Highway 88, which also feeds into Tahoe in some ways from Central California. So people couldn't get there. Once Highway 50 opened, of course that was delayed after after the evacuation warnings were lifted. Mm -hmm. So you had two stages, evacuation warning and then the actual evacuation. So once the warnings were lifted again, we still had Highway 50 closed for a number of days. Yeah. So what were those numbers looking like, you know, in Tahoe before the fire? And then how was it affected by it? Before everything shut down, the casinos were having a tremendous month leading up to September. At one point and by August, there were about almost 23% more in gaming revenues than from August of 2019. We all cut out, by the way, When we're looking at gaming numbers, we cut out 2020 because of the pandemic and it's just an anomaly and we throw it away. Everything gets compared to 2019. Mm -hmm. And they were, you know, 23% ahead of 2019. In September with lost business, the four casinos reported a combined 5.6 million in gaming revenue. It's like 69% down from September of 2019. And notably, it was the worst single month ever for South Tahoe, not counting April and May of 2020, when everything was shut down. So it really hurt the market. And, and now going into September, they're still ahead of 2019 numbers, but only about 13% higher. So really took a cut into the market, losing all that business during, during Labor Day. And, and this is the first time that they've ever had to shut down for something like this, like a fire. Like you said, they shut down because of the pandemic, but this is the first time they've shut down because of a fire in a very long time, right? If, there, if it happened, it's been before my time. Nobody really mentioned, uh, you know, having been shut down like this before because of a fire. This is kind of a, an anomaly that this happened. And it really was, they tried to open up as quick as they can with some of the restaurants. It was a slow rollout for a lot of these properties to get back into the business. The day I was down there with Tim, our photographer, was a massive snowstorm. And I mean, for, for my, I'm from Southern Nevada, massive snowstorm is a couple of flurries, but it was a concise <laughs> It was a good size snowstorm, and that was like they, had, they thought, okay, a great sign for ski season that we're going to get some snow, good snowfalls, and the ski season will open back up and will be a strong market. So the market is in the casinos in Tahoe, they made a big effort to get customers coming back. Hard Rock, for example, very active social media channel, they went out and took photos of all the most picturesque locations in Lake Tahoe and put them up on all those channels saying, look, it didn't burn down. Everything's fine. Come on back. The four casinos made an effort to get customers back. And that's where it's headed to right now. And they're hopeful for going into Thanksgiving, Christmas and New Year's. Yeah. And I was curious too, when you look at Tahoe as compared to the Vegas Strip or even Reno, what does the gaming look like there? What kind of percentage does it make up? Oh, it's gaming is obviously, it's a very small percentage. There's so much else to do in Tahoe. Let's face it. It's what Kerry Hall is the general manager of Harvey's and Harrah's properties said, our competition is nature. People come in to ski, to hike, to go out on the lake, to do other things. 
at night, they you know they stay at the casinos. They'll 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 play at the casinos and this and that, and, and stay there and dine there. But in during the day, it's an outdoors community. So that's it's a destination resort in a sense, like Las Vegas, but in a much different way, in a much smaller way. I think the let's see the the their best year ever in terms of gaming revenue was three hundred and fifty two point six million in two thousand. The strip gaming revenues are over six billion dollars a year. So I mean, so there's there's the difference there. It's it's only four casinos in the market. There's some change now you're seeing. Carol Chaplin, who we heard from earlier, talked to Howard a bit about some of those changes that the region will be seeing. There's not need for more mm-hmm. hotel rooms. There is a need for some some um, redevelopment of some of the smaller the motel properties. We mm-hmm. have almost 10,000 rooms on the South Shore, which is significantly more than a lot of our competition. What we could use is some of the, the underperforming motels that are basically were the answer to the 1980 Olympics and the height of the gaming in South Lake Tahoe. Those are where we'd like to see if those could be combined, developed into a larger, more like maybe the, the Hilton brands or something. And, and so the last thing I wanted to ask about too, is there's an event center that's going to be coming to South Lake Tahoe. Can you talk a little bit about that before we wrap up? That center was actually been on the on the books, they've been talking about since 2010, believe it or not, and they finally got the funding for it. They've had, they finally got approval from the Douglas County Commission, and it's under construction. It's in basically what was a part of the part of flat parking lot at Mount Blue Valleys. Now it's going to be the Tahoe South Event Center. I mean, in terms of event center for for Tahoe, it'll be, it could seat about six thousand for like a one big like a big concert or something or stage event on stage but they actually have the facility to seat it for like four thousand or so for sporting events or other small concerts it's going to be a community event center it's something that the community is really excited about to you know see new, new events and bring more people there maybe some conventions and different types of business they haven't had before You can read Howard's full story on our website, thenevadaindependent.com, where he talks to casino executives and more. There is also an accompanying video on our website, social media, and YouTube channel by our video producer, Tim Leonard. I am here with James Winhart with the UNR Business School. You're a researcher up there. I'm also joined by a fellow reporter, Jackie Valley. So thank you guys both for joining me on the podcast. I'm going to let Jackie ask the first question here about the research that you've been doing. Yeah, we were hoping you could give us the broad overview of what this research shows us. Well, this research is looking at really vaccination intentions across the globe. So across 51 different countries, we were able to secure data from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology and Facebook's Data for Good initiative, where they've been surveying people during the pandemic to try to understand their beliefs and perceptions uh, surrounding vaccination and also preventative behaviors such as mask wearing, social distancing, hand washing. And so using that data, what we wanted to look at in particular was whether individual beliefs about your own risk perception or invincibility to the disease 
would in turn affect whether or not you wanted to get vaccinated and your your concern about spreading the disease in your community. And so we looked at that at the individual level and then across these 51 countries. And we found, as the literature would, would predict, that inv- invincibility, so thinking that you're invincible or having a much lower fear or perceived threat from COVID-19 was a negative predictor of vaccination intentions and also your concern about spreading the disease in your community. So the U.S., U.K., Australia are a little bit more individualistic than, than maybe some Latin cultures or, or, or like in India, family-centric cultures. Is that what you're finding is that cultures that are more family-centric that we normally consider family-centric are those cultures that are more willing to get vaccinated and wear masks than, say, cultures like the U.S.? Well, when, when you look across countries, there's so many other factors as well, say political factors, different types of mandates. And so there's, there's a lot of factors that go into, say, overall vaccination rate. The data used for this paper came before there was actually a vaccine on the market. So we were able to look at just intention. If there was a vaccine available to you, would, would you get vaccinated? In terms of differences in cultures, the collectivism dimension, it, it spans Some countries will be high on collectivism, but you might think of them as very different countries on a lot of other, say, cultural dimensions. For instance, Mexico is much higher than us on on collectivism, and China is also much higher than us. But you probably wouldn't think of Mexico and China as being similar on a lot of other cultural dimensions. So it's just one dimension to help us understand culture. You have to really factor in other dimensions as well, say power distance, uncertainty, avoidance, masculinity, a number of other things to get a a clear picture uh, on how one culture differs from another. How do you frame the messaging around this then, knowing that some people think they're invincible? What's the best way to reach them? I I ask in part because I cover a lot of school board meetings. And so when we saw the face mask issue and vaccine mandates come before boards, it drew tons of people to these meetings. And oftentimes on both sides, there were put downs. And so I, I just am wondering whether that I know better than you versus more empathetic approach would resonate stronger with these folks. Yeah, I, I think I think you're on the right track there with empathy. I've done other work on vaccines where we were focused largely on communicating the risks of, say, side effects or the cost-benefit analysis of you know, whether you should get vaccinated or not. Based on this research and other uh, research we have ongoing and, and recent research from other, other teams, I think the message tends to be to focus more on emotions, emotional appeals, than rational appeals. And what I mean by that is, instead of trying to convince someone that say there's a very, very low probability of a negative outcome, instead, I would focus more on, you may not be personally in that group of people that's very at risk from COVID. However, there's a lot of those people that are at high risk of COVID. And there's also people for whom the the vaccine will not be as effective in creating the antibodies needed to resist the disease. And so by you getting the vaccine, we help to create herd immunity, thereby protecting the, the population at large or your community at large. And so how do we get that message across, right? Because I think, I think invincibility, it's, it's, I think it's very much an American quality. And we're, we're here in Nevada, 
And I think it's very much a part of, of our mindset here as well. This idea of we can overcome adversity, we can pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, where we can be autonomous, free individuals. And invincibility is, is related to those types of values. And, and I would say the values of the U.S., at large. So I don't think it's something to say, hey, you shouldn't think you're invincible. Rather, I think a better approach would be to say, I'm not going to argue with you in terms of whether you are at risk, but we can't, we have to agree that other people are at risk. And so empathy, I think, helps us make that connection. We have the Vegas strong, Boston strong, Mm -hmm. pretty much Mm -hmm. every Mm -hmm. single city attached to that phrase, unfortunately, Mm -hmm. at this point. Has that just waned on people over time? I don't know. Conjecture here. I I think each each situation is really unique. And when we talk about vaccines in particular, we have a pretty long history of vaccine hesitancy in the U.S. And so I think there you're we're we're talking about something different. And I was thinking about that. I was it was a documentary I was watching on 9/11 not that long ago. It's quite a different response to 9/11, especially initially. There was was very much a coming together and a collective concern collective support really about everyone there in New York and then together. I felt there was more coming together there than during the pandemic. And I think definitely not a comparison of apples to apples, right? It's completely different. And most of us have never faced a a pandemic, a threat like this. And there was just kind of the, the behaviors that were either mandated or recommended were also such that it was stay six feet apart, stay at your house, isolate yourself. So that could have, you know, even though necessary, that could have also worked against kind of this idea of working on this problem collectively as a group rather than uh, as individuals. We recently have the vaccine available for, I think it's five to 11 year olds, right? Does the messaging of coming together work for all ages or and demographics? Are you finding that it's a pretty universal message that can spread those things? Or are there messages that will encourage parents to get their children vaccinated? That is definitely one of the next things to look into in terms of trying to understand parent perceptions. Now, I can say based on some of my earlier work, it's much different when you're choosing for yourself versus when you're choosing for someone else. And that is magnified when choosing for a child. So having children myself, of course, you want, you would do anything to help protect them from all types of threats in the world, right? That, that you think about probably much, way too much. And so in terms of messaging there, we're going to need to, we're going to need to look into that and and study that and really and talk to a lot of parents and try to understand their concerns. And again, it's also new, right? It's, it's, it's very new and, and the mandates are coming on us quite quickly, it seems. And so I think we'll see a lot of discussion and rightly so, rightly so. We'll see a lot of discussion on that issue moving forward. I wanted to jump back to something you said earlier that I thought was really interesting. You mentioned invincibility and how we see some of the same traits and people who drive risky or consume lots of alcohol. Why is that? I mean, what is maybe in their psyche or trait wise that has that pattern? Sure, sure. Well, I've seen it in my own life. (laughs) 
<laughs> for sure. You know, as, as you grow up, I, I've definitely felt more invincible when I was younger. And, and, and it's true. I mean, we were working on some marketing studies on say, the Affordable Care Act when, when it first came out. We actually talked about millennials at, at the time as the young invincibles, because a, a problem with the Affordable Care Act was that we needed signups. We needed a lot of enrollment from the young millennials for it to work. <laughs> we needed young, healthy people to offset the, the costs of, of, of the, the less healthy people, but they didn't think they needed health insurance, right? So paying anything, even, even a low rate, uh, was too much. And that, that changes over the lifespan. And we do see that other research on invincibility there's definitely correlations with with gender, with with age, and so that people do perceive themselves to be more invincible, especially say health health related threats when you're, when you're younger, and also males tend to be think they're more invincible in relationship to to females. There's also personality differences as well. So they found that so in, invincibility tends to be related more to egocentric thinking, more independence. So you can kind of paint your own picture uh, of kind of the, the invincible person. We spend a lot of time thinking about the science side of how to develop a vaccine and, and various other preventative measures that we can take. But the human side, I feel, is, is often left out, at least initially. So I think preparing in terms of research to try to understand how, how people at the individual level and also in aggregate respond to various threats is, is very important. Did you, is there any sort of actionable item that you presented in any way that can help increase vaccination rates or mask wearing or any sort of preventative measures for spreading the virus? Yeah, I think it comes back to, again, the more, and we can do this ourselves, right? So how do we create more empathy within ourselves? And I think the trick there is to largely see yourself as more interdependent, more reliant, on others and their well-being than you might think. And so just taking a, a moment to step back and say, you know, my life largely consists of all these other people and they create my world and they define me. And so caring about them and their well-being and doing what I can, even if I even if it's not that convenient for me or I have questions about it personally, if it can help the group in aggregate, especially those that I care about, my, my friends, my family, if it can help them, then why wouldn't I want to? Well, I am here and I am joined by Janelle Calderon and Jasmine Orozco Rodriguez, two of our members of our Spanish team. You guys also report in English, but you do a lot of content in Spanish as well. And, uh, you know, we wanted to talk about that this week, um, something we don't bring over to the English side of the podcast very often. But welcome. Thank you for joining me. Thanks, Joey. Glad to be here. <laughs> And, and so the big thing that we're going to be talking about today is the Spanish newsletter, Que Paso en la Semana, which means what happened this week, if I'm not mistaken. My, my Spanish is not wonderful, but, um, you know, I do speak a little bit. And, and part of it is that we're moving this newsletter to a bit more of a more accessible format for English speakers, right? So it's not just for people that speak Spanish anymore. So tell me a little bit about that. Let's start with you, Jasmine. Yeah. So, you know, the purpose in in approaching this in a more bilingual way is that 
We want to keep the essence of the newsletter the same in our goal of reaching Latinos in Nevada. But a lot of Latinos in Nevada speak English primarily. So nearly a third of the state is Latino, but a lot of those Latinos are born here in the U.S. and grow up speaking English in school the way that we all have. But, you know, there are obviously people like immigrants who their first language is still Spanish and everybody needs the information at the end of the day. And so we want to be able to reach everyone. Yeah, so in our newsletter, you can find like a news roundup if you missed any, like the name says what happened in the in the week. If you missed any of the news, if you were too busy, it, it lets you catch up because we send it out Monday early in the morning. So you can catch up with like last week's news. We also have a little like quote of the week, picture of the week. So a lot of our briefs are actually like culturally related and you kind of get just a better sense of us as reporters and how our culture plays into our lives. Janelle, can you tell me a little bit about what the briefs were? Yeah, well, Dia de los Muertos just passed and we were reflecting of like what it means to us, how we grew up celebrating if we didn't. Uh, celebrate growing up? How are we using that tradition now? In mine, I wrote about how I actually grew up in a in a haunted apartment in Mexico City. So now reflecting back, I'm like, well, yeah, I was scared, but now I feel bad. I feel like the ghosts just wanted to be in their house and I was intruding. Yeah, it's interesting. So I, I grew up, I'm, I'm Latino as well. I don't know if many of our uh, listeners know that or not. My, my grandpa's from El Salvador, my other grandpa's from Mexico. But we never really celebrated Dia de los Muertos, but we, we did do a lot of things around Christmas, especially uh, like we made tamales every year. So I, I feel like I've always had this kind of weird side relationship with my heritage when it comes to my my Latin side. But that's part of this newsletter, right? It's kind of getting to know the reporters that are reporting on this, getting to know them a little bit better, getting to know you and the two of you and, and, and Luce and uh, Michelle as well. Or the, the four of you kind of make up the Spanish team. And, and, and just to, to note too, um, if you want to sign up for this newsletter, if you scroll down on our homepage, whether you're on the English or the Spanish side, there are there's a box kind of like once you scroll past the first headline of the day, with all of our newsletters, um, we have six of them that are like active, and then we have two more that are kind of like event announcements and stuff like that. Jasmine, I know you had a really heavy story recently on a DJ that passed away due to COVID. I mean, kind of talk to me about like the way you tackled reporting it in both Spanish and English. Yeah. So the story about the DJ in Reno, for those who are not aware of it, a really prominent Spanish-speaking DJ passed away in um, September, I believe, early September. And he was on the airwaves in Reno for like 20 years. So it was a big, big loss for the Latino community in Northern Nevada, who grew up listening to his voice. And he just played a really big role in the community. And so for that story, his wife speaks English and his kids speak English. And so we kind of talked about how this might have been a story that was obviously going to be in Spanish because the DJ, his name is Eduardo Rios, and he went by Lalo. And so everyone knew him. He spent his whole career speaking in Spanish, but it just made sense to obviously do it in a bilingual format because 
if we did it in just Spanish, then his family wouldn't be able to read the story about him. So that kind of just, I think, is a really good example of this intersection of the diversity of Latinos in Nevada and across the country and why it's so important to approach news in a bilingual way, especially when there have been so many studies over the last few years that have shown that Latinos are one of the primary groups that are targeted online for misinformation, especially when it comes to politics, right? Janelle, anything else? Any final closing thoughts? Well, yeah, like you mentioned, we we all have different, not just Spanish levels, but also our backgrounds. Like Jasmine, your family is from northern Mexico. My family is from Mexico City and the southeast. And Luz came here when she was in college. And Michelle was born here. She's, I believe, second generation. People can relate, I, I feel. And through the newsletter, they can get to know us better. Yeah, and I'll also mention that all of our videos are translated from English to Spanish as well. You guys do a lot of the narrations for those, as well as Luz. And uh, you also have the podcast Cafecito con Luz. It's our second podcast that we started four and a half years ago now. It's probably 200 episodes of that podcast. So make sure to catch that on wherever you get your podcasts. And again, to subscribe to the newsletters, it's just on our homepage. If you scroll down, you'll be able to find the newsletters there. We have a ton of them. So check them all out, subscribe, and we'll talk about some more next week. So thank you guys so much for joining me this week. Thanks, Joey. Thanks, Joey. Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. We'd like to thank Howard Stutz, Carol Chaplin, James Linhart, Jackie Valley, Jasmine Orozco Rodriguez, and Janelle Calderon for being on the show this week. This show was produced and edited by Joey with additional editing help from Michelle Rendells, Riley Snyder, and Jackie Valley. If you want to support the show, leave us a rating and review wherever you listen and email us with questions, comments, concerns, hypoallergenic candle scents, cute pictures of cats in rain boots, or whatever else is on your mind at joey at thenvindy.com or jacob at thenvindy.com. Our theme song is from the band People With Bodies, and we have additional music from Storyblocks and original music from our own Joey Lovato. Thank you for listening to Indie Matters. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis. And we'll talk to you next week. Is that weird? Did that sound weird? No, that was good. Okay, we'll leave it.